listening to Best Served Cold, a Born Millennials podcast. The Australian true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Formerly Egypt's 36th most popular true crime podcast, hosted by Tama J and Laura Lees. Sit down, relax, grab a drink and enjoy this week's episode. Hey, oh, yeah. ho, let's, let's go. go. Hey, ho, welcome to the show. That rhymed and everything. <laughs> Wow, that was incredible. You don't get intros like that on just any true no. crime podcast. Only is... the worst ones south of the equator. Only the best podcast shows in the best hemisphere. Ooh. Oh, controversial. Controversial, <laughs> controversial <laughs> opinion. Oh, dear, Pie. What are you doing? Oh, yeah. no, he did it. Oh, wow. Usually he... Can't jump on the spinny chair he himself. He puts his paws up and he ends up... Spinning the chair around so fast, he can't actually jump up on it. It's a bit of a sad affair. Good job, man. Good job, good little job. buddy. Good job. Good job. He's a good egg. Well, welcome to the show. Welcome to Best of Cold, the true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. I'm one of your hosts, Laura, and my brain is 15% anxiety, 5% food, 30% attempting to solve the Zodiac case, and 50% wondering what my cats are dreaming. Wow, that's in-depth. And the math even adds up. I made sure. <laughs> and I am Tama J. These boots were made for walking and that's just what they'll do. One of these days, these boots are going to use genetics DNA testing to link you to several unsolved homicides. That was a good one. Thank you. I like that. Yeah. Wow. Well, I thought of that one in the shower. <laughs> you showed me off a little bit there, didn't you? Sorry. Yeah, I had to, you know, I had to do it. To them. Those those long ones are hard because you start thinking about like three sentences ahead. Mm-hmm. You're like, wait, what was the next word? That's what it's like to be inside my brain, but all the time. That's my why brain... if you've listened to any of our episodes and Laura literally forgets the word she's about to say. It's because in my head, I'm already like five sentences ahead of my mouth. One of the funniest things in the fucking world. Though. <laughs> like, I had eggs and what? <laughs> Because my mouth is talking about eggs, but my brain is already like three subjects yeah. away. Incredible. Like the channel's already been changed mm. in my brain and it's like the lag of my mouth trying to catch up. How's your week, Laura? I did <gasps> oh, it's switching it, it up. It up oh, oh, I feel so How's your week? I feel so important. My week's been all right. I mean, <laughs> we missed recording on our usual day, so we're playing a little bit of catch-up, so it's Tuesday for us. Yes. Which is a very weird day to be recording, because we've never recorded on a Tuesday before, so I'm feeling all out of whack. Yeah, and it's we have um, exercise classes that we both each do. So you've um, had a shower and you're nice and clean. I had to catch up on writing the last of my notes, so I'm presenting to you with... My sweaty gym aura, which you can't see, uh, but I hope you appreciate nonetheless. Yeah, just know it's there. It's there. I worked really hard. Yeah, you can hear the smells. Ew, that's gross. (laughs) In a sense. I wonder what the sound of the smell of sweat would be. It would be something like gentle. No, I feel like, I don't know. I don't know. I think it would depend on the person. Yeah, like bacon frying, like. Oh yeah, but I think it would depend on the person. Like some people have really like pointy smells, so I imagine it would <laughs> be like smells. a pointy sound. Yeah, you know how people say there's there's that real small percentage of people who 
can combine their senses so they can like they can hear colors or they can yeah um see sounds that must be like the hardest thing to describe to someone like oh my god look at that guy over there he looks loud mm. and the people around you are like what there's this actually i can't remember her handle but there was this girl on twitter who had it with people's names so like names like were things right and people were like she had like thousands of people be like what's my name and she'd be like oh timothy is a light summer's day with a cloudless sky and then she'd be like oh but Suzanne is a crumpled piece of wet paper that someone's thrown on a ceiling like, I don't know how you distinguish so it random. like how you actually how you actually get diagnosed as it I would just love to pretend to have it and offend people I didn't like with really really awful appropriations for their name. Well, I feel like we all that's in some way have it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like how do you how do you have it? Yeah. You know, is it is it like the the autism spectrum where uh, I have no people... idea. I guess it's one of those things where you literally cannot understand it if you don't feel it. Yeah. If you don't experience it in surround sound. Uh no housekeeping things this week. So I still haven't done the merch. I'm really sorry. Oh. Oh, that was a kitten. I don't know if anyone could hear that. Yes. <laughs> what? She's gotten um. What do you want? Very talkative. She just got a. She just got her uh, de-sexing done. So she's got some stitches on her. She looks like a shaved rat because they did it from the side. Oh, they shaved this massive part off her. It's yeah. really sad. So she's um healing up from a de-sexing operation. So. Little Peachy will be a bit slow for a while, but we'll yeah, keep you updated. Yeah, but it had to be done, so it's yeah. done now. Uh, yeah, no housekeeping aside from I'm going to stop promising to do yeah. the merch. It'll, uh, it'll happen when it happens. It'll happen when it happens. Um, yeah, let's be look, real here. For someone who doesn't have a job, I have a lot of things on. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's don't really have an excuse. Laura's turn this episode, and... You will be taking it away. Yes. Also, a... I would just say, like, don't don't yell at us because I know this is a television show that many people are incredibly passionate about. Tele- oh, right. But Tama and I just started watching The Office, like the American Office, and we're now addicted to it. I think we've watched like four seasons in like three days or something. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've binged through a very large portion of it and we're both really addicted to it. So that's part of the reason why I haven't done the merch because I've been too yeah. busy watching The Office and falling in love with Jim, all that. <laughs> it's one of those shows where I saw episodes here and there but never really saw the whole thing start to finish. Yeah. You know? And I really enjoy it. Well, it's nice to be able to add another sh- background show to our rotation because really yeah. we just switch between... Friends. Friends and How I Met Your Mother. And Will and Grace. Oh, and Will and Grace. Yeah, yeah. That's another one. Just all the terrible shows. Anyway. Will and Grace is amazing. So I'm just going to put a little disclaimer in for today. For, oh, my God. She's going nuts. The kitten <laughs> is like doing laps around the house. <laughs> it's really distracting. Uh, so I know some people don't like unsolved ones. And I know that they annoy yeah. a lot of people because there's no like... Resolution nice little it. bow resolution at the end. Mm. So 
if you don't like unsolved cases, maybe just skip ahead 30 minutes because this one is in particular is an incredibly frustrating one because yeah. it's just not only is it unsolved, but it's like so unsolved. There's not even like clues really. So I'm going to be talking about the Black Dahlia. Sorry, not sorry. I know it's one that gets covered oh, yeah. a lot. Uh, but it's a crime that fascinates a lot of people. It's one that's always fascinated me, partly because of the horrifically brutal nature in which Elizabeth Short's body was treated and the fact that it's unsolved. And, like, as I said, it's, like, unsolved, unsolved. Like, it will probably never be solved because there's no even DNA evidence for them to continue testing. Yeah, there's no way they can use the the, yeah. the Golden State killer method to find Exactly, because there's just, like, no DNA. And to be frank, I think probably the guy who did it is probably long dead now. Probably. So I'm going to run you through the basics of Elizabeth Short and who she was and then the crime itself, uh, but I'm mainly going to try and focus on the kind of small, tiny amounts of evidence there were and some of the theories surrounding potentially who it could be. So Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia, was a 22-year-old American woman who on January 9th, 1947, went missing. Elizabeth was born July 29th, 1924, and was the third child of five. After the stock market crash in 1929, her father lost most of the savings and later his car was found abandoned near the Charlestown Bridge and it was assumed that he'd committed suicide by jumping into the river and his body was never found. However, in 1942, Elizabeth's mother received a mysterious letter from a man who turned out to be her husband who had not committed suicide, but he'd actually just been like, peace out. And abandoned them and pretended to commit suicide and just started a new life oh, okay. without them. Wow. Which, you know, you could do in the yeah, 30s because there's no way of You could live in the same city as them and then... Like, good luck doing that But today. also it's just harder to know if someone's in the same area as you back yeah, then. Yeah, exactly. You know? So at 18 years of age, Elizabeth leaves her life in Medford and moves to California to live with her father, who she's not seen since she was six. However, they didn't really get along. They argued a lot. And so she moves out shortly after. And after this, she is arrested once for essentially underage drinking. And she had a few boyfriends here and there, which was, you know, Trey, disgusting at that time to have <laughs> multiple lovers. Wow. And how dare she yeah. in the 1940s. Unladylike. So unladylike. Uh, but aside from that, she has a pretty normal life. There's a few unsubstantiated rumors that said she was an aspiring actress, although she didn't actually have any credits to her name. So how true that was. True. Okay. We can't know. So on January 9th, 1947, Short returns home to her house in LA after briefly meeting with her then boyfriend, Robert Manley. He reported that he drops her off outside the Biltmore Hotel in LA where Short had said she was going to visit her sister. And this is the last time anyone saw Elizabeth alive with the exception of some strangers who, after her body was found, said that they remembered seeing Short at the Crown Gill Cocktail Lounge near the hotel that Manley had dropped her off at. So on January 15th, 1947, Short's naked, dismembered body is found in a vacant lot by Betty Bursinger, who is walking on her way to a shoe repair shop with her three-year-old daughter. 
So initially, due to the paleness of the body, which I'll get into in a, in a moment, Betty, as she's walking and sort of sees it in the grass in the corner of her eye, thinks that it's a store mannequin that's been discarded. Also partly because she can see that the top half of the body is not connected to the bottom half of the body. So, of course, in your brain... You yeah. want to be like, that's a mannequin, not a human being. It's actually an in- interesting psychological yeah. thing as your brain goes, no, no, that's not the bad thing I think yeah. it is. So due to the fact that World War Two had just recently f- uh, finished, ended, I guess, ended. Did you say World War Three? Uh, yes, I did. I didn't mean that. Wow. World War II... Uh, there were lots of vacant lots in the area where originally there'd been this big development that had been planned, but due to the war, it had been slowed down dramatically. So the area is a lot of like those housing developments, like little plots that are going to have houses on them, but it's a pretty vacant, abandoned area. So the body is found severed at the waist and completely drained of blood, which is why her skin was so white. Mm. The body has been really badly mutilated and a smile known as the Glasgow smile has been carved into Short's face, which if you don't know what that is, if you're listening to this, it basically means you take a knife and go up from the corners of your mouth to like extend your smile. It's also referred to as the Chelsea grin. Yes, it is. Now, I don't want to go into huge amounts of details because when I say her body was mutilated, it was quite revolting and because of the times and because of the sort of lack of censorship there are actually incredibly graphic crime scene photos you can see online if you need to satisfy your morbid curiosity so she has wounds all over her legs and breasts breasts rather with large portions of flesh having been cut away entirely her torso is completely separated and moved several feet away from her bottom half and her intestines have been removed and placed underneath her bottom. Her pubic area has also been badly mutilated with nearly all of Short's pubic hair having been removed by hand, which says a lot about the rage that has gone into this crime. By to hand. rip someone's pubic hair out by hand wow. is a very rage-filled Definitely a crime of passion. Yeah. Now, so because of the time, the press arrive on scene very quickly and there's little to no sort of parameters set up. So as I said, if you do want to go online and look at the crime scene photos, there's incredibly graphic, uncensored images online. So eventually she is also covered with a sheet, which is the strangest photo to look at because they don't obviously, so they don't want to disturb the crime scene. They don't move her parts closer together. So it's like this really long human underneath a sheet. So the only real evidence located at the crime scene is one partial shoe print, tire tracks, and a cement sack with watery blood inside. There's no blood on Elizabeth, no blood on the grass under her or around her, meaning she must have been killed elsewhere, cleaned, and then dumped in the empty lot during the night at some point. On the state of the body, Detective Lieutenant Jess Haskin was quoted as saying, The body was lying with the head towards the north, the feet towards the south. The left leg was five inches west of the sidewalk. The body was lying face up, and the severed part was jogged over about ten inches. 
the upper half of the body from the lower half. There was a tire track right up against the curbing and there was what appeared to be a possibly possible bloody heel mark in this tire mark and on the curbing, which is very low. So the autopsy report notes that Short has ligature marks on her ankles, wrists and neck, as well as superficial cuts and missing portions of her flesh all over her body. Using a technique called a hemicorporectomy, her body has been completely cleanly sliced in half and due to limited bruising, the coroner suspects this occurs after death. So basically, from what I read of a hemicorporectomy, there's only one way you can separate a human torso from the bottom half without snapping the spine. So it's a very specific part of your body where the spine meets the pelvis, where it's held together, I guess, by cartilage. I'm not sure, but it's not held together by bone. So if you cut in the right place, you can literally just cleanly sever a human in half. Okay. So her death is ruled as hemorrhaging due to the lacerations to her face, as well as blows to the head and shock. Now, one disputed fact surrounding this case was that Elizabeth was forced to consume feces prior to her death. This fact was widely reported as hard truth, and in his book, author John Gilmore reported that the coroner who performed the autopsy had mentioned this fact in conversation to him. The coroner in question has, however, denied this over and over, and this fact is also not present in the official autopsy report. However, you read... Nine out of ten articles on the Black Dahlia and they will report her having been forced to consume feces and it being found in her stomach over and over and over and over again. Right, but he officially, it's not not a thing. The coroner mentions it's it. not apparently mentioned it in passing to this John Gilmore. However, right. he's denied this happened and it's also not in the coroner's report. Okay, so take with that a grain of salt. So due to her prior criminal records for minor things, it actually doesn't take very long for the police to be able to successfully identify that the body is Elizabeth Short as her fingerprints are already in the judicial system. Six days after her body is found, someone claiming to be the murderer calls and speaks with the editor of The Examiner, James Richardson. He congratulates Richardson on his coverage of the case and tells him he'll be receiving some, quote, souvenirs of Beth Shorts in the mail. Three days later, an envelope containing a letter written with type cut from various magazines and newspapers reading, here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow. The package contains Elizabeth's birth certificate, her business cards and various bits and pieces, including an address book with Mark Hansen embossed on the front. Everything has been wiped down with gasoline to destroy any DNA or fingerprints. Partial prints are lifted and sent for further investigation to the FBI, but they're damaged in transit, so are never able to be tested. Now, Mark Hansen was a wealthy local business owner. His businesses included nightclubs and theatres, and he knew Short, with friends telling police that Short had most recently rejected Hansen's advances on her. However, after being initially declared a subject, he's cleared of any involvement, as is Manly, who was the last person to see Short alive. So on January 26, another letter is received by a media outlet, this one reading, Here it is, turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m., had my fun at police, Black Dahlia Avenger. So police do go and wait in the area at this time. However, no one shows up and another letter is received shortly after reading, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. 
So despite there being an absolute media frenzy at this point, partially due to the letters that keep being sent and just the awful graphic nature of the crime, everyone is obsessed with this story, but they basically have nothing. They have no fingerprints, no real evidence, no real clue of what could have possibly happened to this woman. So in spring 1947, the case has gone cold. The Black Dahlia murder has long captured people's imagination obsession and has had multiple people confess to the murder of Elizabeth Short. In Cleveland, between the years of 1934 and 1938, the Cleveland Torso murders took place, with several people, including a Cleveland detective, Peter Merrilow, believing these murders were linked with Short. This connection went so far that at one stage, a suspect in the Cleveland Torso murders, Jack Anderson Wilson, was being investigated in relation to Short's murder. With Detective St. John stating he believed he was close to arresting Wilson for the crime, however, Wilson died shortly after in a house fire, and so this potential connection was severed. Wow. So police have many, many, many potential leads, all of which essentially amount to nothing. However, being it's a cold case, there's still an official list of suspects that's around 22 people long. Um, So I'm going to go into a few... I think I, t- I think I wrote down three if I remember my own notes correctly. So I'm going to talk about three of the potential suspects that I guess I found the most interesting. Uh, some were linked officially by the FBI and some were not, but are still kind of interesting. Okay, go for it. So the first one I'm getting into is Walter Bailey. So Walter is a surgeon. Oh, we like that. That's, well, no, it's important because if you think about yeah, the, the, the the procedure that potentially, yeah. yeah, it's not necessarily something that it's just not, anyone would know. Nothing like that would be in, in anyone, any, any layman's immediate knowledge. Exactly. So Walter's a surgeon who lived in LA one block <clears throat> away from where Short's dismembered body was found. His daughter, Barbara, was a friend of Elizabeth's sister, Virginia, and her brother-in-law, Adrian, and Barbara was Virginia's uh, maid of honour, sorry. So it's reasonable to assume that Walter would have known Elizabeth or at least have seen her at some point. So Bailey was never officially considered a suspect, but as detectives surmised to remove Elizabeth's torso, it would have had to have been either someone with medical knowledge or potentially someone that worked in like a slaughterhouse or something and mm. would have reasonable knowledge of how to do it. So Larry ha- Harnish, who was a writer for the LA Times, he began studying the case in 1996 and concluded that he believes Bailey could have been the killer. Harnish contacted Johnny Douglas, retired FBI profiler, nice. to help devise his theory and Douglas advised two things to him. The first was that the public location dumping site had to have had some significance as the killer could have just easily have dumped the body somewhere private. The vacant lot was only one block away from the property owned by Walter uh, Ruth Bailey, who was Walter Bailey's estranged wife. And the second was that the facial, facial lacerations indicated that the killer had to have had some sort of personal anger towards Elizabeth. So at one point in her life, Elizabeth had a period of time where she would falsely tell others that she had a child who had died from a tragic incident. 
Walter Bailey had had a son who was struck by a car and killed when he was 11, and the son's birthday was January 13th, and Elizabeth's body was discovered on the 15th. Oh, interesting. So this writer believes that Bailey could have potentially, his stressor could have potentially been his son's death, and he's thinking about this young woman who has the gall to go around pretending that she's had a child die. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So the next suspect is a widely disputed one, but it is interesting, so I will go into it. And the man is George Knowlton, and basically the only tie he has to this case is his own daughter Janice, who has now passed away, who was 10 at the time of Short's murder, claims she saw her father beat Short to death with a claw hammer, and at the time of her murder, Elizabeth had been living with the family and using their garage as a bedroom. Janice also claims her father forced her to join in for the disposal of the body. She also claims remembering seeing her father dismember an infant and bury another woman in their basement when she was younger. Janice alleged that she'd often accompanied her father to Elizabeth Short's apartment, and she supposedly became Elizabeth and became close with Elizabeth, rather, and referred to her as Aunt Betty. George Knowlton had allegedly used his daughter as a cover when he disposed of Short's body, and Janice has said that George first tried to dump Elizabeth's body into the ocean by Seal Beach Pier, but later disposed of her body in L.A. when it would not sink down into the water. So Janice wrote a book about this whole incident called Danny was, Daddy Was the Black Dahlia Killer, and in the book, she uses circumstantial evidence to link her father to the crime, including the LAPD's initial search for a suspect named George, who drew a tan car, which she claims at the time her father uh, drove. I don't know why I said drew. Sorry about that. <laughs> Quote, the physical descriptions he gave to several of his neighbors before he passed on fits George Knowlton to a T, right down to the fact of the compulsive deer hunting, the work in a foundry and having come from a New England town near where Short was born. This is a quote from Janice's co-author, Michael Newton. To have another George who fit that description to me would almost be coincidental beyond the realm of possibility. So in 1991, Janice did convince the Westminster police detectives to search for evidence of the murder by excavating a vacant lot where the house she lived in used to stand. However, the police found nothing like nothing at all linking him to the crime. Janice's sister has also refuted all of her claims, including the ones that her father murdered other women and molested Janice as a child. So, and Janice also did die of a drug overdose. So, right, and so this has been disputed. Heavily by not just Janice's family, but... Yeah, so literally the only reason that it's linked, there's zero actual evidence. The only evidence is her saying that she saw her father do it. And that her dad apparently matches the description. Yeah. Interesting. The last one I'm going to talk about is, in my humble opinion, the most interesting one because of who put this theory forward. And this is probably the one where there's the most information available There's a whole website dedicated to this theory if you're interested in learning more. So this is the theory that a man named George, yes, another George. Another George. uh, George Hoddle did it. So when former LA Police Department detective Stephen Hoddle began going through his deceased father's items, he uncovered a photo album tucked into a box, one that was small enough to fit into his palm. 
He opened the album and found normal pictures, but towards the back spotted a photo taken by his father, who Steve claims is Elizabeth Short. And I will admit, the photo does look similar, but not like spitting image. But you you could say in passing it looks like her. So being at, at the time this happened, he was still an active detective. He did his job. He started digging. So he found the following things. The hemicorporectomy was a procedure that was commonly taught in 1930s around the time Steve's father, who was a surgeon, went to medical school. The letters sent to the press and police where you could see actual handwriting have been reviewed by a handwriting analysis who said that it has an incredibly close resemblance to George Hoddle's, Steve's father's handwriting. And as he dug further, it turns out that George Hoddle was, in fact, at one point on the official suspect list from the FBI, with a transcript from when they bugged his phone in the Hoddle's home. Most of it's pretty sort of like blah, 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 but there are two interesting points which Steve believes strongly point to his father being the murderer. So during the day at one stage on the 19th of Feb, the following is taken from the transcript. So this is, quote, Realized there was nothing I could do, put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket, get a taxi. Expired 12.59. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. I killed her. Wow. So yeah. this was officially transcribed from mm-hmm. the bug, from the FBI. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of continues on normally and then there's one other thing that stands out. So, quote, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. End quote. Steve now actually believes that his father is connected to not just the Black Dahlia murder, but a whole string of murders across California, which he does go into. I won't go into now, but he goes into it in his book, The Black Dahlia Avenger. And George Hoddle also wasn't exactly a model citizen. He'd also already had run-ins with the law including accusations of molestation against his own 14-year-old daughter. However, he was later acquitted of this. The woman referred to in the above transcript with Ruth Spaulding, who died of a drug overdose, and Hoddle was also investigated for this murder as he'd been present when she died and he'd burnt some of her belongings before the police arrived on scene. Uh, Yeah, no, fuck Police also later found out that Spalding was planning to blackmail Hoddle over misdiagnosed patients and billing them for tests and treatments they didn't need. Steve Hoddle believes that Elizabeth Short was potentially one of these patients, although that's never been proven. Yeah. So those are the main... I guess, suspects that I found the most interesting. There are quite a few. There's a whole website dedicated to the Black Dahlia killer and it goes into a heap of the different suspects and how they're connected. But we'd be here all day if I listed them all. But I might go into some more in Shaker Not Stir if you're keen. Yeah. The last thing I want to cover is our pal Johnny D who released a profile on the Black Dahlia killer, and given that it is an unsolved crime, I wanted to read out the profile that he came up with based on the available evidence and the facts of the crime. So based on the coroner's inquest, autopsy files, and case records, Douglas described the killer as a white male in his late 20s or older with a high school education. He lives alone, works with his hands, and is comfortable with knife and blood, possibly a butcher or slaughterhouse worker. 
compulsive, patient and deliberate, a frequent user of escort service services, heavy drinker under financial stress who spent several days with the victim and when drunk let his personal stress and alcohol escalate into a shocking murder. The killer cut Short's body in half to make it easier to transport but also chose mutilation to make a personal statement about the rage he felt towards her. It also dehumanized and defeminized her. Douglas also believes that the killer chose the disposal site for a reason, as in a personal connection to the neighborhood. He possibly experienced a financial failure after the construction in the area was stopped because of the war. Douglas believes the murder of Short was potentially caused by a stressor, which is no, which is why no further crimes followed, or that in in his grief and remorse over the murder, the killer potentially committed suicide after the murders were done. Right. So I just thought that was interesting to include the profile, quite an extensive profile, and knowing how accurate his other profiles are, yeah, it's interesting. What, what I find extremely interesting with the murder is the draining of the blood. Like, the draining that's of the blood, not a the normal... wiping down of the body. So not only were was all the bits that were dropped off, all the letters, but the body itself was wiped down with gasoline as well to potentially yeah. remove any uh, fingerprints. She was also washed, um, so they did actually suspect also that she was raped, but there was no semen present because she was washed Everywhere yeah. to remove any trace of evidence. Also, there was just heavy mutilation everywhere. That, yeah. See, um, it, it's what, what's interesting is the letters. So, if we're to go off the idea yeah. that the letters did actually come from the Black Dahlia, which they must have because it had evidence connecting. Well, the the him first the one victim. definitely had to because it had her birth certificate yes. and but her the, business cards. The next two, maybe not. You know? Potentially, yeah. I don't think it was ever like conclusively proven that any of the letters like definitively came from the killer. But yeah, but it's safe to say that the first one definitely had to would have, have been, which is interesting because it doesn't show a any resemblance of remorse or sorrow for the actions he's done. In fact, yeah, he's quite chuffed with himself, and he's trying to egg on the police, mm. um, which you can take either way. It can be him just being an arrogant piece of shit or maybe he's trying to egg police on to ca- catch him. You know, we, we've seen occurrences of both um, in in different cases. Definitely an aggressive murder, very aggressive and personal well, yeah, murder. It was... I think that's why so many people want to believe that it had to have been someone who knew her was connected to her because that kind of mutilation we we know from covering many cases mm. where the killer mutilates the body it's a it's a revenge thing it's a rage yeah. thing like you don't just do that but yeah very very interesting but yeah one that I honestly don't think will ever be solved because there's no there's there's no DNA or evidence to really keep on file and you know keep testing as as DNA testing gets better. There's just nothing. Yeah, and it's just an old case where like again like you talked about the paparazzi coming in and taking photos and possibly trampling evidence. Who knows? 
And yeah, what you said at the start being that it was committed in the 1940s. Yeah, exactly. Very, very highly likely that whoever did it is now long dead. Yeah. Someone who was even in their late 20s at the time yeah. would be rather old at the moment. But yeah, Steve Hoddle is like fully convinced it was his dad. And he has a whole website that he's made dedicated to all of the evidence that he wow. believes he has. That must be a jarring thing. As to- a police officer, people can't yeah. stop talking about how crazy it is that you as a police officer start to look into a cold case in your area because he was an LA police officer, yeah. don't forget, and then find out that it was potentially your, your father that did it. And you were adamant about the fact that your father probably did it. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Not only that, but he now believes that his father's linked to a bunch of other murders of women. Just going off of the... He was the one who was bugged, correct? Correct. So just going off of the bug, the secretary thing, and how potentially she was going to use evidence of him mucking around with his patients against him, and then she obviously disappeared. Had a drug overdose. A drug overdose, right. That he was conveniently there for. Yeah, fucking hell, man. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, it's one of those things where we have these these possible ties, much like the alphabet killer, mm. or the, you know, the Zodiac killer. It's things where even um, the JFK assassination, people aren't really convinced that, yeah. you know. Also, I do feel like I stumbled on my words a bit in that one, so I do apologize if oh, that no, was you were annoying to listen That's to. That's fine. I felt like my tongue was too we big try for our my best. mouth. Yeah. Every now and then I just have days where, like, it's not even that I'm doing that thing when my brain gets ahead. It's just that my mouth doesn't want to work. Doesn't feel right. Doesn't yeah. want to say words. I get you. All right. Well, I I'm will interested be jumping into my case. Your now. one drives me crazy. Insane. So if I get mad, I have good reason. Yeah. Because this bitch should be in jail. Yeah. So I'm talking about Casey Anthony and the subsequent murder of her daughter, Kaylee Anthony, in June 2008. She did it. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. She did it, 100%, but suffered no consequences apart from that of the public to it. And largely it was due to her very bizarre behavior, but also the evidence being, quote, circumstantial, um, which in my opinion, is a gross overstatement. But also just her defense team were just very skilled lawyers. They knew exactly how to sway the jury. Let's just say that. So um, I'll be going over pretty much everything. And and there'll be a lot of things I'll talk about in Shaken Not Stirred. Specifically, we'll go into like specifics about the interrogations and interviews with her talking to her family while she's in, in custody. Um, it, it's all very interesting. The most the most compelling, not compelling, the most bizarre aspect and the thing that I think draws people to this case is just her totally outlandish behavior. Well, it's the same thing for the Stephanie Rasmussen. Ste- exactly. Yeah. No, Lazarus. Stephanie Lazarus. I'm getting the you names mean, yeah. confused. Um, it's just the... Which, by the way, we should do that on Shaken Not So and include some of the clips oh, yes. from the interrogation. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's... The... Like, if it wasn't about someone 
being brutally murdered, it would be hilarious because it's just the weirdest thing I've ever heard. If Stephanie Lazarus is one example, on a different end of the spectrum, you have Casey Anthony. So you have someone who knows they've gotten away with something and is in fear of potentially getting caught and getting these things pinned to them. And they get very defensive and, you know, um, here's a reason why I was here and uh, I can't believe you're asking me this and fuck that and angry and angry and angry. Anyway, I'll stop talking and let you Casey Anthony is the opposite side of the spectrum of she's very calm and has an answer for everything. And I'll get into the psychology of it because it's absolutely fascinating to, to, to look into. So, um... Casey Anthony uh, was born on March 19, 1986 in Warren, Ohio, and she was one of two children of Cindy and George Anthony, with George having worked in law enforcement. As a kid, Casey was bright, personable, young, uh, young girl with friends and what many thought of just an ordinary American family. Um... However, friends saw that they said that they saw a pattern of lying beginning when Anthony was was in high school. Cindy and George attended Anthony's graduation along with Anthony's grandparents, only to discover that she was several credits short of graduating. Um, so, so what actually happened was um, she'd stop attending classes towards the end of her her senior year when she was about eighteen. Her whole second half of the year. Um, she missed classes uh, and she couldn't actually graduate. Um, when she was about 19, she started to put on weight. Her parents were suspecting that she was pregnant when she essentially just denies completely saying that she's a virgin and right. months into her pregnancy. She's just like getting on that like burrito line. Exactly, she's like, yeah. I just had a really big lunch. But months into her actual pregnancy, she tells her parents the truth that She's, in fact, pregnant because she can't hide anymore. Yeah. Uh, She points to different men as the father, but uh, the father's identity has forever remained a mystery. Um, She points to one of the men as being her fiancé at the time, Jesse Grant, who, uh, as well as a different man that she dated previously who had apparently died in a car crash. Yeah, just... So many different cases of these weird things. On August 9th, 2005 is when Kaylee Anthony was born, the daughter of Casey. A friend of Anthony said that she had discussed giving her baby up for adoption at some point, but was discouraged by her own mother. For the next few years, Anthony and Kaylee lived with their parents and Grund acted as the baby's father. Grund even believed that Kaylee might be his baby, despite knowing that the timing of her conception made it improbable. Oh, sweetie. Uh, a DNA test would later find that Grund was, in fact, not the father. Though, to this day, we still don't know the father's identity. On July 15th, 31 days after two-year-old Kaylee disappeared, Cindy reported her missing to Orange County Sheriff's Office. In the phone call, Sydney could be heard frantically giving as much context as she can to the phone operator, even explaining about this weird smell they found in Casey's car. Um, where at first, 
um, she's just explaining these things. The operator asks if she can speak to Casey. Casey at first rejects her mother's offer to speak with the operator and eventually she's just forced onto the line with the operator. When Casey can be heard, she's dull, dismissive, borderline unemotional, not really giving much of a response, just, hello, hello, yep, that's it. Um, it goes through a bit of detail. Uh, she says about... Um, you know, a couple of days, 31 days ago, her daughter was missing and she tried to find her naively on her own with her own resources and now she realizes that it's, yeah, that was stupid. And No. Yeah. I'm sorry. In about no. mid, a month before mid-June, with her suitability as a mother called into question by Cindy, Casey left her parents' home after a huge argument taking Kaylee with her. Casey said that she was leaving for a work assignment in Tampa, Florida, and that she would be traveling the entire time. Over the ensuing weeks, Casey's parents would ask repetitively, uh, repeatedly, sorry, over the phone if they could see her daughter, or at the very least, so they see if their their granddaughter, and at the very least, if they could talk to her. Each time, uh, Casey told them that she was too busy with work, and the little girl was out with a babysitter named Zenaida. Fernandez Gonzalez or Zanny. Now, keep that name in mind because it's very important. Okay. June 16th, 2008, Kaylee is last seen alive at the Anthony family residence. According to the defense later on during the trial, um, this at this point, uh, their whole argument is that Kaylee drowned in the family's above-ground swimming pool sometime during the day, and both Casey and George Anthony panicked upon finding the body and covered up her death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. So here's a timeline of everything that ensues the day that um, Casey leaves uh casey's um daughter kaylee is just has disappeared so 7 a.m cindy anthony testifies that she left for work a few minutes beforehand uh still at 7 a.m while everyone in the home was still asleep 7 52 a.m activity from casey anthony's password protected account on myspace and research for shot girls costumes for tony lazaro's nightclub events 7.56, AIM account was used to chat on the computer. 12.50 p.m., according to George Anthony, Kaylee departed with Casey by car around 12.50 p.m. with backpacks on their shoulders. And although George testified that Casey and Kaylee left the house at 12.50, there was further computer activity on the home computer associated with Casey's account and her cell phone pings do not leave area of... Um, do not leave the area of the Anthony phone family home until about 4.11 p.m. Uh, at 1.30 p.m., activity associated with Casey's AIM, MySpace, and Facebook accounts uh, on the home computer. The last browser activity during the session was at 1.42. Um, Casey makes a few phone calls from 1.44 to 2.30 p.m. Uh, and 2.30 p.m., George Anthony testifies that's when he left home to go to work. 2.49 p.m., Casey Anthony's cell phone connects with the tower nearest to the home and the Anthony family's desktop computer is activated by someone using a password-protected account that Casey Anthony uses. In 2.51 p.m., 
a Google search is made for the term, quote, foolproof suffocation, misspelling the last word as suffocation. The user clicks on an article criticizing pro-suicide websites that promote foolproof ways to die. There's some more activity on MySpace. She answers a phone call from Jesse Grund. He describes this conversation as, quote, abnormal, where Casey stated to him that her parents were divorcing and that she had to find a new place to live. She sounds like she just is a pathological liar. She is. Yeah. And I get way into that. Okay. Uh, 3.04 p.m., Casey disconnects the phone call from Jesse Grant to take an incoming call from George Anthony. According to the defense's statement later on during the trial, the 22nd call from her father took place as soon as he got to work to tell her that, quote, I took care of everything, telling her that he disposed of the body and warning her not to tell her mother about the child's death. 3.34 p.m., Casey makes a phone call to her boyfriend, Tony Lazaro. It goes unanswered. Between 4.10 and 4.14 p.m., Casey makes another uh, six unanswered calls, but this time towards her mother. Um, for 11, her phone pings again, uh, at either out or near the house until she headed towards Lazaro's apartment around 4.11 p.m. when... Um, when she actually leaves for it. 7.54 p.m., she and Lazaro were seen entering and walking around casually at a blockbuster video store, and Kaylee is not with them. Now we go to June 17, 2008. George and Cindy Anthony notice that the gate to the swing pool is open and the ladder is next to the pool. June 20th, Casey Anthony is captured in various photos partying around the Fusion nightclubs and partaking in hot body contests. June 23rd, Anthony Lazaro testifies that he helps Casey break into the shed at her parents' home uh, to take gas cans for Casey's car, which had run out of gas. Lazaro said that he watched uh, Casey open the trunk of her car, and although he did not see the inside of the trunk, he said there was no odor that he could detect. June 24th, and this is just fucking bizarre. George Anthony, so Casey's dad, called police to report that there was a break-in and reported that the gas cans in his daughter's cars were missing. Later this day, he saw Casey at the Anthony residence and confronted her about taking them. George said that he went to get them out of his daughter's car. She ran past him, quickly opened the trunk, and retrieved the gas cans herself, yelling, quote, Here's your fucking gas cans. George testified that he smelt gasoline in the car but did not detect any other odors. Uh, June 30, 2008, Casey's car is towed away from a parking lot after being there for several days. Now, this is six days after that gas can incident. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her purse, a child's car seat, are found in the car's back seat. July 2nd, 2008, Casey gets a tattoo on her back saying, Bella Vita, which means beautiful life in Italian. Cute. Now... Uh, July 15th, 2008. Cindy and George receive a phone call saying that Anthony's car was in a tow yard. George later goes to pick up the car six weeks after Kaylee was last seen by her grandparents. Six weeks? Six weeks without seeing their granddaughter. He finds Anthony's purse along with Kaylee's car seat and toys. Now, it was supposedly the car that 
Casey was supposed to be using for work between now and six weeks before when she told her parents that she was leaving for work mm. in Tampa. George immediately notices a strong smell coming from the boot, one that he knows very well from his obvious years as a police officer. Ah. He distinctively clues it in that it's organic matter decomposing, most likely coming from the trunk. Mm. Through one of her friends, Sydney finds out that Casey Anthony is at the home of her boyfriend, Tony Lazaro, in Orlando, where they were both found smoking pot, and she's then brought home. Uh, here, Casey breaks down, telling her mother that and brother Lee that she had left Kaylee with their nanny, Zanina Fernandez Gonzalez, in Orlando on June 16th, and that Gonzalez has kidnapped the toddler. It was at that moment that Cindy makes the 911 call. Um, now, just for a second, let's just pretend this is all true. That you know, the nanny there was nanny kidnapped the baby, kidnapped the baby, and you didn't report it to the police. Yeah, it sounds legit. The immediate thought is that Casey, when answering the phone, you listen to it, has at this point, even if it's true, zero regard for her daughter's safety. Yeah, thirty-one days after she was supposedly taken. And on the phone, she could give a shit. She couldn't give a shit. Um, there's just no urgency or emotion, emotion in her voice yeah. at all. And in, in fact, it just seems like as if it's a mild inconvenience for her. Yeah. And rather than volunteer information, uh, uh, as most um, parents would, the information has to be acquired through the dispatcher by repeated, repetitive questions. Um, simply put, Listen to the 911 call, which we will do in the Shake and Not Stirred episode, mm. and just listen to the distinction between Cindy's dialogue to Casey's dialogue. Cindy's dialogue is frantic. It's, this has happened, and this has happened, and oh my God, and oh my God. And then Casey's just like, yeah, yeah, the blah, 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 blah. Like, very nonchalant. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that just listening to this phone call, police and detectives would have picked up immediately that the something's cir- off. Yeah, the circumstances alone are just weird. So she is like immediately the prime suspect, just from the circumstances alone. The phone call just kind of is the icing on the cake. So she's pulled into questioning as a quote witness on July sixteenth with. Without her knowledge, this was the detective's first step in just trying to trap her in as many lies as possible. So realistically, they were interrogating her. Um, After questioning Anthony, detectives found many discrepancies in a signed statement that she made about Kaylee's disappearance. One of importance was how she met the supposed babysitter. Casey says that the babysitter had been employed by her for maybe nearly four years and that she met her through mutual friend Jeffrey Michael Hopkins. She goes on to say that she met Jeffrey Hopkins at Universal Studios, a place of work where they both at some point attended. Gonzalez was supposedly the nanny for Jeffrey Hopkins' son. Casey continues answering the detective's questions, saying that Hopkins no longer works at Universal. He had left there maybe nine to ten months prior moving to North Carolina for a short time before moving to Jacksonville for the, within the last three months or so. <laughs> Jumping to the Casey Anthony trial, Jeffrey Hopkins takes the stand. Jeffrey Hopkins answers the prosecution's questions and he admits that he shared no real relationship with Casey Anthony whatsoever other than 
bare acquaintances. He did, in fact, work at Universal Studios. However, during 2002, six years prior to the disappearance of Kaylee, he worked there for about a year until he was fired. Uh, and and just also in 2002, Casey Anthony would have been 12. No, 16. Yeah, 16. Yes. Thereabouts. Um, to his knowledge, he didn't work there during the same time Casey and Anthony did. He doesn't recall ever seeing her there. He states he never introduced Casey Gonzalez to a... A Casey to a woman named Zanata Fernandez Gonzalez, and that he had never used a nanny because he doesn't even have children. <laughs> uh, he also admits that he has never lived in the Orlando area. Uh, so he has lived in the Orlando area consistently since 2002, and at no point in time has he ever moved to Jacksonville, North Carolina. The final thing he admits is that he did not see or contact Casey during the month of June 2008. During her interview with the, t- the detectives, she states that the last time her and Hopkins were in contact was, quote, about a week and a half ago. Supposedly, what Casey would do is she would drop off Kaylee to Hopkins' house where Gonzalez would babysit for both her and Hopkins' kid simultaneously at Hopkins' house. Now, accordingly to Casey Anthony, only a few people would have known about Kaylee's disappearance. Um, those people were both Hopkins and a co-worker of Casey's, Juliet Lewis. Juliet Lewis doesn't exist. The investigators caught Anthony in another lie when she told them that she worked at Universal Studios, even leading him around the theme park. Now, to her credit... Casey briefly did work at Universal Studios, but she hadn't been employed there for over two years prior to the interview. She also stated that she was an event coordinator along with fake Juliet, when in reality, she worked behind a fucking kiosk selling photos of people after they'd been on the Incredible Hulk ride. The babysitter Gonzalez also doesn't exist. In fact, Anthony never even had a babysitter at all. Never used one. I can't. I can't. Exactly. These weird details that Casey professes in regards to these people who never existed, their backstories, they're all textbook examples of a pathological liar. She speaks almost naturally. It's almost second nature to her just to, to, to just factually come up with these fabricated memories. It's just offhand. How long did you know Hopkins? I, you know, I met him... I, I talked to him, you know, a week and a half ago. She has these... He moved up to Jacksonville and then North Carolina. Just these insane fabricated stories that takes a long, long time to just be able to to come up with on the spot. Uh, and what's quite clear is that her dialogue is like a reflex response to the questions being asked. So whatever question is being asked, it's... Here's an answer. Done. Her skills at manipulation and deception can stem back to the consistent theme of the show, Nature versus Nurture. Casey, obviously being on the receiving end of a obscure side of nurture. So, given what we know about Casey, we know that there are numerous occasions where Casey has gotten away with things 
that other people wouldn't have, mostly due with her parents, um, due to the fact that whenever she was able to continuously lie without conscience, she would get away with it with whatever she wanted. Um, a great example was to go back to the her skipping her senior years and when she was 18. She stopped attending her classes midway through the senior year. In fact, she skipped the entirety of the second half of her year to hang out with her older boyfriend. Her parents became suspicious and on several occasions, um, yet each time Casey was able to give an elaborate excuse as to why she, and why she hadn't been attending and she was just given the benefit of the doubt by her parents. Days before the graduation, her parents were informed by the school of her skipping class and that she would not be graduating. When they confronted her, she gave another excuse that her timetable got mixed up by the school, causing her to miss several classes by no fault of her own. Now, to us, maybe with the benefit of hindsight, maybe just because we don't believe this shit ourselves, this would be a red flag. Um, an insane cover-up and excuse that no one in the right man would believe, but it, if, either it be from denial or an overprotective nature, Casey's parents not only believed their daughter, but actually actively shielded her from the consequences of her action. They, in turn, lied to all their family and friends, saying that Casey had graduated with her honours and even threw her a graduation party the day after. Now, this is just one of many, 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 many occurrences where Casey gets out of a situation by lying with no repercussions. And this seems to have given her the confidence that no matter what she does, if she manages to consecutively and continuously lie her way out of it, everything's going to be fine. The truth is that everything did work out for her most, for the most part with her parents, with life. And uh, she believed that this would be the same exact thing when dealing with natural law and a missing child's investigation. Uh, after the initial statement she gave, Casey was asked if she would take investigators to all the places of interest, to which she happily obliged, leading them to a series of fake addresses to which she had, quote, nothing to do with. Um, as well as this, she took them to her supposed office in Universal Studios, leading three senior investigators down and end of the building, taking over 25 minutes to walk through before she finally puts her hands in her back pockets, laughs, and admits that she'd never returned to work for Universal. She was arrested on July 16th and took in, uh, she taken to a conference room in the building where the three senior detectives essentially interrogated her. Um, here, Detective Allen, Detective Wells, and Detective Mellish pressured her uh, with Mellish leading in with uh, having explained that after all these false leads, including employees that either did not exist or hadn't worked there in the first place, that just by looking at her, he knows that she's lying about almost everything. And he just he comes out straight out of the bat and just says, just by looking at you, I don't believe you. Everything, uh, including Kaylee's whereabouts. He catches her in the line about Hopkins, telling her that uh, he knows that he was fired six years prior in 2002 and did not leave 10 months ago, as she stated. Detective Allen basically calls her out in asking her why they were there in the office building. He asks her, why are we here? Why uh, have you brought us here? And getting her to admit that she was lying. And before she can kind of reach for an excuse as to why, Allen would cut her off and just say, no, no, why are we here? What's the reason that we're here? To 
which she would respond because I lied to you and then would sort of go on to formulate another response as to why she was lying like I was scared blah 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 blah. he would cut her off and they would kind of go around this weird circle thing um now what was interesting that he asked her how is lying to us going to help us find your daughter to which she admits okay it won't uh, he essentially tells her that it makes no sense to them as to why she would lie to them if she's genuinely concerned for her daughter's safety. To boil it down, they kind of call her out on a few of her inconsistencies, such as her last sighting of Kaylee, why she didn't call the police or her parents, or why the child was left with a babysitter that she, quote, didn't trust. Afterwards, Casey was taken to a county jail where she got the chance to talk to her mother over the phone, but not before seeing a spicy little clip of her mother speaking on the local news. Now, this little clip seemed to... Spicy little clip. Yeah. So, it really seemed to piss Casey off because she, her mum mentioned that she didn't really know what her daughter's involvement in Kaylee's, uh, Kay, um, Kaylee's disappearance was. Um, and the phone call includes Casey's mum asking, you know, why did you lie about, you know, where she is and your work details and all these things that could possibly help find Kaylee and Casey's just pissed off, dismissive and saying, oh, I saw your nice little interview saying this and that and, you know, fuck you and I want to speak to my boyfriend. What's my boyfriend's number? And she kind of doesn't really give it to him. Then she's asked asks to speak to her brother um who she also asked for the number and he's just kind of like why are you also lying and just kind of goes around and around 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 and then eventually lands on her best friend uh, christina where they again also share back and forth about why she's lying and they just really want to find kaylee and make sure she's safe and she just gets kind of pissed off and says things like Oh man, this was a huge waste. Just give me Tone Tony's number and let that be that. Casey appeared in court the next day where she was initially denied bail due to her undeniable disregard for the well-being of her fucking daughter. Uh, and she was kept in protective custody um, until nine days later when she actually got her first chance to speak with her parents. Uh, her mother explains to Kaylee, and this is very important that to Casey, that... Kaylee's disappearance will be on the front page feature of People magazine, of which averages a readership of over 46 million adults in America. Now, if you were a parent who had a child missing, this would be a fucking godsend. Mm. This would be the best possible news ever. Yeah, of course. Um, And, you know, we'll obviously go into the reaction of her and Shake and Not Stir, but I encourage you to watch this interview because it's just... Just such a shit response. Mm. Just like, good, great. Just nothing. No emotion. Um, what's I find extremely interesting is she does at some point break down and start crying to her mother um, at some point during the call, but this is most likely due to the emotional trauma of being in solitary confinement for over two weeks while receiving nothing but news that you're America's most hated mother. 
At no point does she cry from the mention of a deceased daughter or the image of her daughter on her father's shirt as he's wearing a have you seen me Casey yeah. Anthony shirt um, with details on how to contact the grandparents on the back. She doesn't cry, doesn't isn't phased by it at all. There's no real, you know, emotion there. When she does break down, it's simply just attributed to an emotional moment between her and her mother. Um, throughout the call, it's interesting to note that she immediately shoots down the credibility of anyone who's trying to help with the involvement of Kaylee's whereabouts. Um, and it's here we see, you know, more of Casey's skills to to divert anything away from her. Um, now, Casey's mother asks her, asks Casey what her gut tells her, and this could just be her trying to extract information from her, maybe getting a, a whereabouts of Kaylee. And Casey's response is that she is okay and that she couldn't be far; she would be close. And this is probably the the first time that she actually, maybe involuntarily, involuntarily, told the truth. Because she indeed yeah. wasn't that far away. Uh, during her time in custody, she was evaluated by two clinical psychologists and not a single ab- abnormal normality, that was a hard word, abnormality was discovered with her psychological state. Essentially meaning that there aren't any signs of mental illness within K- Casey. Uh, as the search for Kaylee intensifies, Anthony was just, she was getting barraged with scrutiny and um, basically just being caught out for all these reports of her partying and getting a tattoo that reads Beautiful Life in Italian, all the while her daughter was missing. Um, and what's really fucking bizarre, a weird, bizarre turn of events... Uh, Anthony is initially returned home on August 21st with the help of her attorney um, who helped her get a plea deal. Uh, not a plea deal, a um, bail deal. Uh, and her bail was paid out by bounty hunter and reality TV figure Leonard Padilla who posted a $500,000 bail. Uh, the reason... Padilla hoped that Anthony would lead detectives to find Kaylee, but was disappointed was disappointed when she failed to provide any additional yeah, clues. Yeah, she's a piece of shit. Yeah. And uh, the case became a national fucking media sensation um, after this, obviously. And Padilla, Padilla labeled Anthony, uh, Casey Anthony as a narcissistic and promiscuous person, fueling the fires of public sentiment against her. Um... Two months later, police were actually granted permission to arrest Casey for the first-degree murder of her daughter, and she was taken into interrogation again, but immediately requested her right to counsel. Um, and I'll go into all the footage of that on Shake and Not Stir because it's, again, just one of those weird circumstances. On December 11, 2008, uh, meter reader Roy Kronk found a plastic bag of human remains in a wooded area near the Anthony's home. The skull had duct tape on it. On December 19th... Wait, the skull? skull had duct tape on it. As in, the decomposed yeah. remains had duct tape across the mouth. Right. Yeah. I think it was 
I don't know if it was still on the mouth, but that's where it came from. The skull, uh, the on December nineteenth, the remains were confirmed to be those of Kaylee Anthony. Uh, and initially, the prosecutors were seeking the death penalty uh, during the trial of Anthony, uh, Casey Anthony, which began in June two thousand and eleven. It's three years after the initial disappearance of her daughter Kaylee. Cable news channels broadcasted the trial live, and Kaylee, Casey Anthony, and Kaylee and the rest of the family dominated the news for a while. The prosecution painted the picture of Anthony as a promiscuous party girl unconcerned with her missing daughter and responsible for her murder. A website about the toxic chemical chloroform had been searched to the Anthony's home computer, uh, a search that Cindy took responsibility for on the stand, and chloroform was found in the trunk of Anthony's car. In uh, For Anthony's defense, led by uh, a lawyer called Jose Barz, with co-attorney Cheney Mason, uh, working pro bono, told a very different story. So, as I said before, um, they had this narrative that Kaylee supposedly drowned in the family pool on June 16th, and yeah. George Anthony was trying to cover up the death so that Anthony wouldn't be charged with child neglect. Um, Buys shocked the courtroom when he dropped this fucking bomb of a statement during his opening statement. Yeah. He said that George, Casey's father, sexually abused Casey beginning when she was eight years old and that her brother Lee also made sexual advances towards her. Now, a paternity test showed that neither Lee or George Anthony was Kaylee's father in case you were wondering. Anthony was used to covering up her hurt, by said. George, of course, denies the allegations... And on June 30, um, the defense rested. Anthony herself did not take the stand. Just a real piece of shit move. But in her defense's defense, uh a real fucking smart move. Mm. Just divert all attention away from Casey's involvement. The, The poor thing didn't work. Fuck it, whatever. Dad raped me. Big bombshell. The jury fucking lost it. Um, on July, f- f- the 5th of July, after a bit of deliberation and all credit to her, to Casey's defense lawyer, just any, just watch the trial because it's all on YouTube. Um, it's just baffling. Mm. He's just, he's just reeling these guys in taking them for a ride and the, the emphasis is on the circumstantial evidence it's circumstantial don't base your decision off of circumstances base them off of cold hard facts of which there are supposedly none on july 5th the jury found anthony not guilty of first-degree murder, aggravated manslaughter, and aggravated child abuse, citing the mostly circumstantial evidence presented. She wasn't found guilty of four counts of providing false information to law enforcement, which, let's that's fucking fair. However, uh, and was thus sentenced to four years in jail and $4,000 in fine. However, two of the false information counts would later be thrown out in appeals court. Anthony ultimately received credit for time served and good behavior. Having been in prison for three years and one day, she was released on July 17th. 
Anthony was always also required to be on probation for a year due to check fraud charges and was ultimately billed with more than $200,000 owed to law enforcement related to the search of Kaylee. Many in the public and the media were outraged at the guilty verdict, uh, bringing real comparisons of the trial of O.J. Simpson in 1995. Uh, and the aftermath of the trial brought out about a slew of bills in several states um, qu- uh, cited as Cayley's Law, which would make it a felony for a parent or a legal guardian, guardian not to report a missing child. Yeah, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. In 2012, Florida Governor Rick Scott signed a Cayley's Law Bill, and according to Mason, um, the one of the the attorneys for Casey Anthony, she herself has lived a life of seclusion in a Florida home, wary of venturing into public due to festering reactions to the case. Having filed for bankruptcy, she is estranged from her parents and keeps in contact with her formal legal team. In the spring of 2017, Anthony gave a series of exclusive interviews to the Associated Press, claiming to the state that she didn't know Kaylee died and adding, I don't give a shit about what anybody thinks of me. I don't care about that. I never will. I'm okay with myself. I sleep pretty good at night. Go fuck yourself. That was me, not her. The Associated Press described this interview with Anthony as revealing, bizarre, and often contradictory, and ultimately raised more questions than answers about the case. Anthony currently lives and works with Patrick McKenna, the private detective who left, who led the investigation for her defense team. Well, yeah, because who the fuck else would hire her? Would she hire? Well, yeah, that's true. Who, who, who the fuck else would work with her? Oi. Yeah, that that one makes me angry. Yeah. So, like I said, the most important factor here and the most interesting factor is the the interviews. They're just so bizarre. Every single one of them. She has this weird social thing where if I'm having a discussion with you and we're talking about cats. Mm, You have my interest. (laughs) And you're like, oh, my cat threw up the other day. And I'd be like, yeah, that's really crazy how cats do that. And you, you'd be like, yeah, um, this one time, and you're about to tell a story, and I go, mm-hmm. It's yeah. this weird interjection thing to let you know that I'm interested in your conversation. I'm here, I'm present, I know what you're saying. And we do it on the podcast. We go, Yeah, yep, it's like a back mm-hmm. and forth. Her mm-hmm and her yeah and her interjections to let the other person know, in this case her interrogation with the detective waiting for her attorney, they come at really weird sporadic moments. Almost as if she has no idea of how to socially include herself in this situation. It's just there to be like, yes, I'm paying attention, but really I'm not. Mm. It's very interesting. It's almost like you could take all of the interjections she makes and put them seconds, literal seconds before, and that would fit. But the way they fit now, it's unhuman that's really interesting yeah and i'll you know obviously go into that in depth a lot um but it's yeah it's just so bizarre just such a weird the the interesting thing i find is that she has this clear disregard for a daughter right like that's obviously you don't you don't wait 31 days to i mean she didn't even file the report herself it was her mother she obviously killed a daughter 
I 100%, I bet money on that. I bet money. Um, she obviously killed her daughter and doesn't give a shit about the fact that she did it. In fact, wants to protect her own ass more so than anything to do with her and her family. She doesn't give a shit about anyone besides herself. She's a narcissistic individual. Um, what's interesting is just this lack of emotion in regards to anything that doesn't include herself, Mm. you know? But the thing is, there's nothing as far as two psychologists, trained psychologists could find wrong with her. There's no mental disparity. Yeah, She's a normal functioning human being, a pathological liar at that, but extremely narcissistic. But... How do you yeah. not have any emotion to the fact that you killed your daughter? No remorse, nothing. Yeah, it seems very strange, doesn't it? It's that it's so interesting because even with Chris Watts, it's like you can sort of sense something's up, and then mm. like in the trial, you can see this clear like he's staring downwards. He's stated that he regrets doing it, but with her, it's like. Nothing. Yeah. I wonder if she'll ever confess. I don't think so. I think she's too much of a fucking narcissistic prick to Cause it's, um, think so. double jeopardy, so I don't think she wouldn't be able to be tried again for it. Yeah, but I don't. I think we've established that she thinks of herself pretty highly and wouldn't want to... I think she just wants to fade into obscurity, to be honest. Which she doesn't deserve, but... Ugh. Yeah, that's a shit one. Yeah, it's a real shit. And this is kind of a shit episode. <laughs> we have two instances. Very of, unsatisfying. Yeah, cases. I remember reading into this case, getting up to the point of the trial, and being like, "Cannot fucking wait for the, them to put this bitch away." And then it gets to the non-guilty verdict, guilty verdict, and it was just shocking. Yeah, you're like, what? Even watching the trial, I watched the tri- the whole trial, and even then, I was like. This defense thing is is weird. It's just weird. Like just to to say, don't make a, a verdict based on circumstantial evidence. Are you a detective? Who the fuck are you? You're a fucking at- a defense yeah. attorney. Yeah. Some. Um... Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't it's know you, good. homeboy. It's not good. No, it's a bit of a shit. Don't one. like it. Um, and like we said, stay tuned for our Friday show coming out on Friday, that is, <laughs> uh, Shake Not Stirred, and we will be going into a bit more about the Black Dahlia murder, and, um, I'll, we'll be listening to actual interviews with Casey Anthony and interrogations and whatnot, and we'll dissect them a little bit. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be fun. Yeah, it's, it's something I wanted to do for a while because that's my, like, real niche i think Mm. with these stuff is like criminal psychology yeah this just really gets my um my gears grinding nice yeah very nice well i think uh that's the end of the factual portion of the show if you are someone who does not enjoy the banter uh thanks for tuning in we'll see you next week fuck off This is the portion of the show where things just really kind of fall off the rails, unhinge. Uh, Pandora's box is opened. Uh, There's worms everywhere. (laughs) 
get it because it's oh, a no. can of worms, but Pandora's box. So I just combined them. You can't just combine a can I and a box did. together. I just did. Pandora's can. Pandora's can. There's fucking worms. worms everywhere. Man, worms are gross. Hey, they keep our soil nutritious. Yeah, and they can stay there. They can stay buried in my plant. Well, they don't want to. When have you ever seen a worm just like come out of the ground and been like, hey? The other day, it was a real prick, too. It was yelling at me for no real reason. They don't have voice boxes. That's what you think. It, it was really nice. We have um, a little garden in our backyard area. and Which has we, gotten really, really out of hand. Manky, but, you know, it'll. I love the word manky. Yeah. Uh, but we were planting plants. A little while back, and we were we discovered the soil in the planters um, have witchetty grubs in them. Which, for our non-Australian listeners, see witchetty grubs freak me out. Yeah, they're like. But just to finish my point, they're very good for soil. My point. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um. Very mature segment. Do you know what? I was actually thinking, I watched this video on YouTube the other day. It was like when celebrities like explain slang words, like, oh, they're just like us. They yeah. use funny words. Oh, they're hey. down to earth people. Um, and I Cadillacs. was thinking about how many like weird Australian slang terms there are. Oh, there's heaps. Yeah. yeah. There's but heaps. Um, I discovered one that I'd forgotten about, which is not an Australian one. It's a British one, which is uh, Minga. Yeah, Minger. Minger. Mingin. Mingy. Mingin. Yeah. Mingin. Which, what is, it, what is it again? It's like... Uh, I think it just means kind of like gross. Right. Gross person. Mingin. We should do a whole segment of the podcast where we just go... We just explain Australian slang words. Considering that most of you guys listening are dogs from breakfast states, dogs breakfast, yeah, is that apparently that's an Australian slang term? Would you like to explain that what dogs breakfast is? I'm not too familiar with dogs breakfast. Oh well, which one is dogs breakfast? So dogs breakfast is like when something's a real like mess. So oh, if you were yeah. to like submit homework it's or something that's breakfast. like all over the place and makes no sense, your teacher would say that's dogs breakfast. Yeah, yeah. What uh, else you got there? What else have I got? Um, pull the wool. Oh, is that really an Australian one? Pull, pull the, the wool, wool over your eyes. No, that can't be an Australian Apparently, one. Apparently, allegedly, it's a, an Australian one. Pull the wool over your eyes. So it means to fool someone, to trick someone. You know what is a very Australian thing? What? Is And Carl Barron makes a joke about it, that Australians add weird kinky things to the end of the statement, the sentence. So, like, you'll be in a bar and your mate will be like, hey... Go up to the bar, you buy next round, fuck ya. I've never heard that. Fuck ya? No. Really? Apparently, well, put a sock in it is an Australian slang term as well. I don't think that's an Australian term. What is this site? Next, they're going to be like, uh, howdy doody there, neighbor. CNN. So it's an American website. Yeah. Explaining Australian. Slang words to us. So, apparently, put a sock in it is an Australian thing, uh, which just means to tell someone to shut up. Is this Australian slang or is it just slang in general? No, it's an Australian slang. So, why is CNN explaining to me my language? Well, I don't think CNN's main audience is Australians. It's an American website. 
So they're explaining Australian slang. They're not doing to a very Americans. good job, are they? Well, they are. There's just things, I guess, maybe yeah, they, they dogs are. Dogs breakfast, good on Can you. Can anyone from a different country please confirm if you say these things in your country? Uh, what's another one? Six of one, half a dozen the other. Have you heard that one before? No. That's basically like uh, lose, lose, damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of vibe. Never heard that before. I've never heard that in my life. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. No. It's kind of like saying, because six of one is six and half a dozen is six. So it's saying like, oh, you do that, that'll happen. But if you do that, it'll happen anyway. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Yeah, righto. Oh, this is definitely an Australian one. Wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire? I don't think that's Australian. Apparently it is. That's I've heard Americans definitely say that. I don't yeah, this isn't I'm not this is pissing me off. <laughs> this is really angering me. On your bike, tell your story walking. On your bike, Mike is On your bike. On your bike, Mike, I'd say. On your bike just means Well on your bike, yeah, get, I'd say on your bike. Get yeah. the fuck out, doesn't it? Yeah, on your bike just means fuck off. Yeah, on your bike, like tell your walking, on your keep... bike, tell your story. Walking is like yeah. shut up, leave, like no one cares. That is pretty Aussie. Yeah. I'll, I'll give him that. I like that one. I'm happy with that one. Um, you've just changed your ranking from a two out of ten to a three. I, I'm not going to say that one because you'll get angry at that one. What, what is it? Apparently, cooey is an Australian thing. Is that really only? Do we really like only do cooey. that? Cooey. I don't know. Apparently, that's an Australian thing. It's where you, I, this, people think we're so strange. You go into like somewhere that echoes and you yell cooey really loudly and you're like, oh, wow, it echoed. Yeah. And if you do it with your <laughs> mate, you go like hun- several hundred meters away from each other and do it. Well, that was a learning experience for both of us. Yeah. I want to know. Yeah. Let us know if you want to hear more Australian slang terms and we'll tell you if they're actually Australian slang terms and not just words people use globally. But then again, maybe just because we've grown up hearing them, we think. No, I swear, man. Like, there's like movies and TV shows and just talking conversations with Americans. Like, yeah, some of them just don't seem right. Oh, here's some. I'll I'll read these out and you've got to quickly. These are some good ones. Okay, so what's a cold one? Cold one's a bevy, a a brew, a beer. Yeah. What's Akadaka? Akadaka ACDC. Arvo? Afternoon. Avo? Avocado. Barbie. Barbecue. <laughs> uh, bloody. Uh, like fucking like bloody is just like a, an, an like a adjective or booze bus. Uh, that is the the courtesy bus that takes you back from the pub or the police or the police. One. Yeah. Bottleo. Bottle shop. Brolly. Uh, umbrella. Budgie smugglers. Uh, uh, thongs or just like swimmers. They're not thongs. It's like speedo. Yeah, like a yeah, but people don't know what a speedo is. Uh, chocker block. Chocker block. Um, full. I got. Um, my plate's full. Siggy. Cigarette. Cobber. Uh, bloke. Person. Uh, coppers. Guy. Cop. Crack the shits. Uh, losing your shits, like losing the shit, like getting angry. Uh, Dax. Dax. Um, oh, like underwear. Pants, yeah. Pants, yeah. Uh, Defo. Definitely. Devo. 
devastated. <laughs> this is great. This is mad. Uh, what's Dari? Dari's a like a cigarette, but like a. We rural. literally just going through this. I'm like, we're so unoriginal. Dari's like a dirty one that's like nearly out, but you're really sucking it. Everything is either just has an O or a Y at the end. <laughs> or, yeah. So Dunny. That's that's the Lou. Esky. Esky is a cooler. Facey. Facebook. Suck <laughs> <laughs> so Oh, oh Fuck me dead. Um, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, fuck me dead. Fuck just, me dead. It's like, just like get out of here. No, it's more like a oh shit. Yeah, like, no, oh, but like damn, get that the fuck sucks. out of here. Fuck me dead. That's one of my. Come on. It's um, truth. Yeah, there's some. Is that it? I mean, there's heaps. There's 125. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we'll continue this on shaking not stirred. Okay, so here we, here we go. We've got three oh. that all kind of mean the same thing. So right. we've got no drama, no worries, no wuckers. Yeah. So just no problems, mate. Yeah. It's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Pash? Kiss. But like P- real passionate. Piece of piss? Uh, too easy. Easy as. Piss up? <laughs> yeah, that one's <laughs> obvious. You got to... Come on. If you don't know what piss up is, then... P- <laughs> well, the, we're, we're in the piss section. So we've got piece of piss, piss off, piss up, piss, pissed, pissed off. <laughs> well, we sure like our piss in Australia, don't we? Um, I'm trying to find some good ones. If anyone doesn't know what piss up is, you can hit us up in our DMs and I'll sickie? explain it. I think a sickie is an Australian thing. Yeah, chucking a sick day. Chucking a sickie. Stiffy. Is that a boner? <laughs> <laughs> Stiffy. Um, okay, I feel like it's going to get very boring very quickly yeah, for people. Let's, this, let's, is very, let's call it this is very fun for us. Um, but I would love to know, I swear some of those ones I said first are like common phrases. So yeah. if you are, I know a lot of our audience is in the States, so if you are an American listener, can you please confirm if those, what were those two ones that I said at the start that I'm sure that are just common phrases? That's a great question. I don't know. I don't remember what they were. Um, you'll have to go back and listen to it. If you've, unless you're pulling it up, you're probably pulling it up, aren't you? Because I know that's something you do. Yeah. You're just exactly a, you're a dedicated doing. bitch. Pull the wool over your eyes. Yeah, that's that me. was one that I swear is just a common phrase. Common phrase, and put yeah. a sock in it. Yeah, put a sock. Please in it. confirm: Are these Australian things or are they universal things? Because I swear they are universal things. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to need some confirmation from our lovely American listeners. Please, and thank you. Anyway, so as per usual, the end of this episode went a really weird, unexpected, completely untrue crime-related Yeah, but what are you expecting at this point? What are you, what are you really expecting at this point? Uh, what are you expecting? I would like to name the code word for this week. Ooh. Dog's breakfast. Dog's breakfast. In honour of our... Australian slang yeah. adventure. Bonus points. Tell me what you had for breakfast that day. Tell us what your dog had for breakfast that day. <laughs> That's just one answer for that. Did he eat your homework? I don't know. Maybe he or she did. We just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what we'll be covering on next week's episode, uh, the what, mystery of... The mystery of what happened to the homework. Yeah. Oh, well, anyway, thank you so much for tuning in. I don't... Do you have anything else to say? Anything else to add at the end there? Uh, I love you all. Thank you for joining in and listening to we, us. We are the BSC podcast on all social media platforms. Check us out. Shoot us through a message. I had some more lovely listeners asking for cat 
pictures last week, happy to send them. Yep, you happy keep to asking, oblige. I'll keep sending because there are endless photos. You for will me to regret. Send. <laughs> I send so many. I'm like, okay, yeah. so what I'm going to do is I'm going to send them by cat. <laughs> <laughs> so here's 17 photos of Pi. And the photos of the other two are incoming. And here's a tuft of his fur in the mail. He loses so much fur. Yeah. I could do that. All right, let's wrap it up, dog. Wrap this shit up, bruh. Yeah. We'll see you guys on Friday. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, main episodes released on Wednesday. Bonus episodes released on Fridays. Mini episodes released on Mondays. Bye. Bye.